John chapter 2, beginning of verse 1 to 12. I'm going to actually read the entire section right here. And then what I'm going to do once we read it is one of those little segments throughout the Gospel of John, which uh, just I, I, I think needs to be just read on its own as a standalone story. And then we can look at it, think about it, listen to it, ask some uh, questions, make some observations. And uh, that's kind of the way I want to approach it this morning. It's a really famous passage. In fact, uh, we'll learn a lot about Jesus and the author John and what his intentions are about Jesus and what he's hoping for you and I to basically learn and grow from. I think today's going to be awesome. That's just my my, my opinion because the text itself is so awesome. So with that, uh, let's read John chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12 starts like this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. And then Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother then said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Verse 6. Now there were six stone jars filled uh, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus then said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the best wine or the, the, the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And then he manifested his glory. And then the disciples believed in him, verse 12. And this is, this he went down, then he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray. So, God, we ask you that you would just take this story and, and let it speak to our hearts. And, God, give us wisdom and insight and understanding. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, words of comfort, encouragement, and exhortation, and, and critique uh, wherever it's needed. Lord, give us what we need. God, we trust you as the one who will take care of us. So we entrust this morning in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So the way I kind of want to do this morning is because, like I said, I, I think the story itself is, is beautiful. It's one of those amazing images where it's just it's worthy of just reading it uninterrupted. Uh, what I want to do now is I want to kind of go back a little bit and take a look at some various elements or aspects of it, because I think there's a handful of things in here that the writer uh, John wants us to learn or think about. Uh, in terms of the significance. Um, in order to do that, we'll kind of unpack a few uh, elements that are there. Uh, the way I want to do it this morning, number one, I'm just going to kind of give like a rapid fire round, just basically like, think about big E on the I chart, like letters, like what are the most obvious or low-hanging fruit that we can just basically pull and pick and, uh, and enjoy. And then we'll take a look at some of the other elements that might be lesser known uh, to Western readers. And then uh, I'll just finish with some like final pastoral thoughts or encouragements or however you want to describe it, um, some summary ideas that we can basically take away. So with that, let's just jump in and take a look at the rapid fire round, and I'll make some observations. I actually added a couple more since I, I did my slide here this morning, so these are freebies, and uh, you're welcome, and you get what you paid for, but here we go. Um, I, I think one of the first things that really hit me, and uh, these are not on there, I'll deal with the ones that are not on there first. Um, one of the worst 
case scenarios in life oftentimes become the, the means by which God shows his, his greatest stuff. Um, the, the, the guy, the master of ceremonies that was responsible for basically, think of it as like a wedding planner. Uh, their job, and we'll get into some of the nuances and the significance of a wedding in just a moment, but imagine showing up um, and it was your job, your responsibility to basically make sure that there, the, the wine would not run out or the food would not be a shortage. And, and you failed. You failed. Um, and and it's, it's amazing to me that within this very context, uh, Jesus, number one, does not shame him. He doesn't pull him aside and be like, how dare you? You fail. I can't believe you allow this to happen. What were you not thinking, you know? Um, but instead, he actually takes this faux pas or failure um, that he brought into. In fact, again, we'll look at it in just a moment, but the idea of a wedding in the first century was so significant. There's actually first century documents that were circulating that if you failed or if you didn't keep up your part of a wedding feast or like take good care of it, you can actually be liable for for being uh, sued, which is pretty significant. Imagine not doing your job. It's not just simply egg on your face. It's not just simply like, oh, oops, we got one less bottle of Carlo Rossi. That's a bummer. Um, it's actually worse than that. Like, you literally can bring shame upon yourself and upon the family that you're representing. Uh, but Jesus doesn't, like, drag his name through the mud. He doesn't, like, call attention to the fact that he failed this. Instead, what he does is he picks up the circumstance and carries him in the midst of this. He doesn't rebuke him. Instead, he uses this, which is kind of the second thing I noticed with regard to this. The worst case scenarios oftentimes become uh, the very places that God loves to show his, his greatest, uh, uh, greatest work. And, and again, imagine if this is your job and you drop the ball there, that would have been the worst case scenario in your life. Like you would have felt the, the, the shame of that. And yet Jesus comes in and is like, hey, we're going to do something. We're going to let the wine flow freely. We're going to take care of you. Um, now let's just jump into a couple other rapid fire things. Uh, this is the first of seven miracles uh, or signs that John is going to record for us that Jesus does. Uh, next slide, I'll show you this kind of a little breakdown. Uh, we'll just look at this really quickly just for those of you that are interested in this type of stuff. So there's seven main miracles that John actually shows throughout the entire book. In fact, uh, authors have identified that the book of John is actually written around these seven. Uh, radical signs. And the signs um, uh, are, are significant because they point us to something. And again, we'll look at what a sign is in just a moment. And the bonus sign, the big, big bonus sign is obviously the eighth or the number eight oftentimes in Jewish literature is like the number of new beginnings. And I think this is John's kind of way of selectively choosing. And again, did Jesus do more miracles than this? Yes, for sure. But John selectively chooses seven miracles that he feels are going to basically point people to Jesus in a very specific light or specific way. Uh, the Gospel of John, if you're familiar, is very distinct from the rest of what's called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're synoptic because they are, 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 are very similar to one another and share a very similar story. John's is radically different. John's written from a whole different like perspective and angle, but he has an agenda, like we've said from the very beginning. His aim is so that as you listen to these stories— as you observe them and hear them and think about them and, and, and consider them, that your heart would be uh, made to life, that you would arise in a sense of, of see the value and the beauty of who Jesus is and whatnot. So uh, the next little thing to think about is, uh, we'll go back into the little uh, rapid fire. Uh, many of Jesus' miracles are collaborative. This is, again, just another one of those like, interesting things. Does God and can God do miracles on his own, unencumbered or unaided by a human agent? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of times in which he does that. But there are occasions, like a lot of occasions actually, where Jesus actually does his miracles by way of using or inviting human agency into this, this process, which is crazy. Again, 
um, these guys were actually told, fill up the water, the, the water jugs of, of water. And uh, therefore, they did that. And this is the raw material that Jesus was able to use to bring forth. And again, you see this kind of throughout uh, the rest of the gospel accounts uh, where Jesus invites him to bring me whatever food you have. So some little kid brings his, you know, fish and his baked bread, whatever, his Lunchables. And Jesus multiplies this so that 5,000, 4,000 people are fed. We also see that where Jesus would tell a guy, take up your bed and walk or stretch out your arm. Again, these are, these are invitations. Uh, you, if you want to think of it this way, a lot of us, we are waiting for God to do something. And sometimes God is actually waiting for us to step into an act of faith and obedience. And, and sometimes it goes both ways like that, that God invites us into something. And, and as we step into that, then we begin to see God doing something. Uh, again, it's sometimes maybe the stubbornness of our own hearts that just says, I expect God to do X, Y, and Z. I'm not going to do anything unless it happens. And, and I'm just saying that you, you might be waiting for a really long time. I mean, God may intervene and God might show up and do something in, in a really profound way that you never expected. He can do that. He initiates all that. But at the end of the day is that there are occasions where he actually invites us into that. Another uh, rapid-fire round bullet point is Jesus' miracles benefit the most needy. So I like to think of it this way. Uh, Jesus embodies compassion, empathy, kindness, and goodwill Um, all the time. Whenever Jesus does something miraculous, uh, whether it be feeding the needy or healing someone, these are the the, the bottom rung of society. Um, Think about someone that might be a cripple or their body does not work. Or they're blind. And they, in that culture and society, they didn't have, like, Braille to read. They didn't have, like, uh, American with Disabilities Act going on for them. There was nothing. These people were literally at the bottom rung of society. Most people just kind of omitted them from even their knowledge of awareness that they're even existent. Jesus never did. Every single time he did a miracle, was always for the most needy of society. So I would add this, that if you are somebody, especially in our cultural milieu, that values compassion or empathy or kindness or generosity, then honestly, the person at the top of your list of someone that you should emulate, worship, love, and adore should be Jesus. And all that Jesus embodies is kind of an irony is an irony for me in some ways where uh, there's this idea that, you know, we, we are all about uh, empathy or compassion, and yet Jesus sometimes is not even considered. Like, man, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Jesus embodies this. The gospel accounts over and over and over again bring this to light. And then uh, lastly, we see that Jesus actually uh, chooses the least expected places to oftentimes do his best work. Uh, the, this place, uh, Cana of Galilee, was probably a city of like maybe 200 people. And it's, it was the least expected places. Uh, we saw in the chapter 1 where uh, one of the early disciples uh, is told, hey, the, we think the Messiah actually was found. And they're like, well, where is he at? Like, he's from Nazareth. And he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, come on, Nazareth? That's like a, you know, like what, we, like what you said last week. It's like Fresno. I didn't say that. You guys said that. Or it's like Bakersfield. I didn't say that. Don't. Anyways, um, if you if you weren't here last week, listen to last week's message. But the point that I would make is this: is that can anything good? God uses sometimes these places that we would least expect any type of grace or goodness or kindness to come out of, and these are the places that God oftentimes shows up and does some of His greatest work. All right. With that, I want to jump right in and begin to take a look at some of the, the, the main meat and potatoes of the message or the passage, or I should say here, and then derive some of our message from this. And I really want to just focus on two specific aspects. Number one is Jesus' sign, and what we see that is uh, taken from verse 11. Uh, let me read that to you again. It says, this is the first of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. 
And then the second little aspect of this is, uh, and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed it. And I like to think about verse 11. It's kind of like a summary statement. Like this is John the Apostle's summary statement. So uh, if you were kind of like thinking about it as listening to a story, first he tells you the story, you know, verses 1 through 10. And the story's compelling. It's interesting. If anything, you kind of sit back and like, whoa, water to wine. How cool is that? He's like the life of the party. This is incredible. He really cares about bringing out the best, the choices, the most amount of, of this amazing substance uh, to bring life to the rest of the people. And so what John then says, this, what I just read to you, or I just spoke to you, shared with you, this was a sign. This was a, the first of the signs that I'm going to tell you throughout the rest of this book. Uh, more on that in a second. And the second thing is he's going to describe Jesus's glory. And again, we'll get to that. Let's first of all just talk about and they'll think, think a little bit about the idea of sign. Uh, what's really interesting is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, the first synoptic gospels, not once is anything that Jesus does in terms of a miracle ever referenced as a sign. This word sign is actually really, is only, it's unique to the gospel of John. He's the only one that uses it to describe the miracles of Jesus, which raises a lot of questions. Like why did they not describe Jesus's miracles as signs? Instead, what they described these as were basically demonstrations of mercy and power. So anytime Jesus does something in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's basically uh, pointing to the fact, hey, isn't God, or isn't Jesus powerful? And again, at some point, they're going to get to the fact that he is God. But uh, as you're following the storyline, they're really just trying to make the, 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 the effort to point out that this Jesus is powerful. He's good. He's full of compassion, full of mercy, and so therefore he's going to go heal somebody. But they never refer to what Jesus is doing as a sign. And this is where the nuance comes in, I think is important to kind of point out, to think about. John sees what Jesus is doing as authenticating signs. That, that phrase is important, authenticating signs. So in other words, whatever Jesus is doing by way of miracles, which we said showed forth on that list, all of these are intended to be a sign. In other words, not the end of itself, but something that points to the end of itself. In other words, again, I, I like to think about signage in our modern culture or like in marketing and media or whatever. Uh, a sign is not like you see the Trader Joe's sign. You don't walk up to the sign and try to get, you know, JoJo's from that sign. Like they don't exist in that sign. You got to go into the actual shop to buy those deliciously scrumptious cookies um, because that's just the sign. It's pointing to the actual place. And that's the same thing that he's saying here. The sign that Jesus does at this wedding is not intended to be the end all of itself. It's to point to something, point us forward to something else. And so John sees this as authenticating signs. One Bible dictionary described it this way. These are like symbolic actions or like the symbolic actions of Isaiah and or Ezekiel. They're like dramatizing the message of Jesus. So whatever Jesus is saying or declaring, this is sort of a street dramatization. It's intended to aid and cause wow and, and authentication and, and amazement in the eyes of the people so that when they look at that, it's not to just be the end all. Jesus is not going around doing parlor tricks. His aim is not to just wow people. His aim is to point people in a particular direction of all that he's doing. Again, John even tells us the reason why I selected these signs is because I really want you to believe. I really want you to believe. And what we saw this last week, the idea of believing is not just walking away and being like, ah, oh, yeah, it's cool. Jesus is awesome. His whole point is that I want you to orient the sum total of your life around this historical figure called Jesus because he's worthy. 
And he's more than just simply a teacher. He's more than just simply a, uh, you know, worker of miracles. He is literally God in the flesh who loves you. He is the author of the story of history, stepped into his own story and took upon himself all the wickedness and evil and went to battle for us. Those that have brought nothing but brokenness and pain and sabotage and ruin and vandalization of his good work and good creation. That he is, he is the one who has come to rescue us. That's what John wants us to see. It's this radically compelling vision of God's love. In fact, his most famous verse that we're all familiar with, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. I would, if I was writing this, I would say, for God was so angry with the world because it's so such a bad place. It's not how John writes it. God so loved this world. He loves it so much so that he's willing to step into it to take upon himself its ailments, its proclivities, its, its wickedness, its judgment that it is bringing upon itself to rescue it. Okay, lastly, as we jump into this. What is a sign? So this is important because as you follow throughout the entire Bible, the idea of a sign is really unique. Um, in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, uh, these are just a variety of things that are identified as signs. So for example, stars. Did you know that in the Bible? Stars. The actual constellations are described as a sign. Uh, sign for what? A sign pointing to God who is creator over all things. That's what they're pointing to. Also, uh, you see the actions against Pharaoh when Moses stands up and he causes all of these, uh, you know, confrontation against Moses. These are described as signs, signs of God against Pharaoh and the judgment that he's bringing upon Pharaoh in order to free the people of Israel. Here's another interesting one. Uh, Jewish clothing, accessories, and haircuts are actually described as signs. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, in Jewish culture, uh, men, they were not allowed to shave the corners of, that's why if you see Orthodox Jews today, that is really long curl that's going on right here. Like you might think, what's, what's the reason for that? That is a haircut. And the haircut is intended to be a sign. For what? That's that guy's way of basically saying, hey, I belong to Yahweh. He's my God. His ways are my ways. His love is what covers me. Uh, all that God is all about is the way I've warranted my life to be uh, of all that God is all about. That's, it was meant to be a sign. In the same way, whatever it is that Jesus is going to be doing here with regard to wedding and wine is intended to be a sign pointing forward to something profound. All right, let's jump in as we go into the idea of sign. Take a look at the idea of wedding and then wine. So first of all, the idea of a wedding. The first thing that really kind of hits me on this is just the sheer mundaneness of this, right? So let me, let me put it this way. Let's say, for example, your aim was to basically be this revolutionary and you've been gathering steam. You've been collecting a handful of like followers and people that are going to be loyal to you and your whole little shtick. And then you stand up like, we are going to go. We're going to launch day is on this particular day, according to the gospel of John right here. On the third day, on the third day is launch day. What are we going to do, Jesus? We are going to Wait, and then all of a sudden you have the disciples. They're like, we're going to walk on water. We're going to heal sick people. We're going to feed thousands and thousands. Jesus is like, no, we're going to turn water into wine. Like, wait, what? Water into wine? That's not really doing anything, really, for anybody, other than just kind of a, a fun party. Like, who doesn't want to turn water into wine? But Jesus, but this is what's fascinating. So one scholar actually pointed out this. This is one of the reasons why we know the Bible is actually true. It's just a record of reality. Again, if you're trying to fabricate a movement— based around this, the grandeur, the greatness, the power, the amazingness of Jesus, why would you start with a miracle that's so mundane? 
we're just talking about someone's shame that come. It's really one guy or a handful of like you know people that were in um, uh, specifically uh, intended to taking care of this wedding, but they dropped the ball. But Jesus starts his entire ministry with this one sign in this one particular thing. But then that kind of leads us to the next little aspect of this, is that a wedding was very important in Jewish culture and history. Now, again, it was definitely, I, I don't know if I would say it was more important than healing uh, a, a man who was born crippled or a man who was blind or uh, taking a, a woman that was an outcast and welcoming her. But this is what Jesus chooses. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And John knows what he's doing, is that he's basically pointing us in the direction of what Jesus is up to in this world. So with that being said, what, what was the significance of a wedding in the first century? Now, a wedding in a Jewish context was massive. We tend to think of our weddings today as like a you know, three to five hour event. By the way, how many of you guys are dancers at weddings? Okay, both of you. All right, cool. Um, anyways, I'm not a dancer either. I don't, I, I'm usually like my wife and I. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, my kids still to this day, like we would always grow up, when my kids were young, we would go, daddy was out doing a wedding. It was, you know, weddings are always Saturday night, and I always get to bed early on Saturday night, so I would usually show up and do a wedding, and then we'd leave, like, before the cake, and so to this day, my kids still hold it over my head. They're like, Dad, you never let us stay for cake and dancing, and so, anyways, that's kind of a big joke in our family, but the point that I would make is this, is that weddings are not just simply this five-hour event that you show up at, you enjoy some food, and see some old faces you haven't seen before, and cut it up on the dance floor. Uh, that's great, but that's not how Jews would have seen it. A wedding was something that was so significant. Oftentimes, it would last between three to seven days long, extremely long uh, of just regular constant festivities. A lot of food. The, the food was always flowing. The wine was always flowing. The, the celebrations were always flowing. Uh, conversations were always flowing. It was, it was beautiful. Um, it also brought about a unification of all forms of family members and villages. Think of it as this massive um, reconvening a, a collection of human beings under one roof or under on one property, just celebration. This is one of the reasons why uh, a wedding in a Jewish context became a picture of heaven, became a picture of what, what does the world look like when it's all set to right? In other words, when human beings live in cooperation and alignment with God who created all things, oh, it'll look like a wedding. Everything will be beautiful. There will be this reunification, this unity, this clarification, this beautification of all things. And this is why the concept of weddings throughout Jewish history and literature was so significant. So with that being said, Jesus' first sign had to do with the wedding, but also with wine. So let's talk a little bit about wine. We're told that they were between 20 to 30 uh, gallon jugs. And I have a little picture up here. So those of you that might be interested, these are massive, like 20 to 30 gallon jugs of, of water. These were used for purification. John tells us these little details. Another thing I've mentioned to you that when you read your Bible, pay attention to the little details. There, there's, there, you might not always know exactly why they're there for. This is why it's good to have like a good Bible dictionary or commentary or something like that that could help you. Uh, but the point of the matter is every little detail that's there is there for a purpose. So John tells us these are purification um, uh, water jugs that were used to basically bring uh, cleansing to a person's hands or feet or whatever the case is. In this particular context, uh, we're told that uh, it was these that would have been filled with water. So first of all, I, I think 
um, in terms of who would be recipients of this letter that John had written. So there's at least two major groupings of people. Number one would be the non-Jewish community. So these would be like pagan or Gentile people that were not familiar with Judaism. Uh, what's interesting, the first century, uh, if you were non-Jewish, especially if you were non-Jewish, you would have been very familiar with a myth built around the concept of wine. There was a, a, an ancient god by the name of Dionysus. In fact, if you were in Rome, he was called Bacchus, and he was known as the god of wine. It's really fascinating to kind of do a little bit of research and study about him. Uh, this is a, an actual cult of Dionysius. He was the god of the grape harvest, wine, fertility, insanity. Fertility is interesting. Like why, why fertility? Because sometimes when people have a little bit too much to drink, they do things that they probably normally wouldn't do under other circumstances, and voila, you have a child. And uh, so fertility is kind of like associated with that. Um, Insanity, it's interesting. He was the, the god that, that would bring about insanity. You, 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 you worship him too much, you go insane, you get kind of crazy, loose. Um, and ecstasy, um, in other words, doing things that are not of part of the normal. Um, his wine, music, ecstatic dance, oftentimes was viewed as freeing followers from a self-conscious fear or care. So again, think about it. You know, when you show up at a party and someone might be drinking a little bit too much, or this might be for some of you like like Thanksgiving, your uncle comes in and it's just like he's obviously had enough too much to drink. It's like he's talking about stuff he normally wouldn't be talking about because he's 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 no longer got those uh, proclivities that are are controlling him. Um, uh, it's interesting that within the pagan view, uh, this particular god Dionysius or Bacchus was oftentimes viewed as the god that comes or appears, epiphany. Uh, he is the god of epiphany. He shows up. He shows up, and he's here. Uh, another way to think of him is the god of, uh, or the dying and the rising god. Uh, there's another name that was given to him, um, uh, Liber Potter, which means the father who frees, the father who frees. Interesting. So I, I find, again, if you were non-Jewish, first century, reading this document about Jesus doing this first sign, you'd immediately probably have to confront some of the, the, the pagan ideas that you had about this. However, the Jewish angle, Jewish perspective of thinking about the concept of wine, is that wine throughout the Jewish history was actually viewed as something that brought forth life. It was this long process that brought forth goodness, and wine makes the heart merry or happy. Um, wine was a, a, an idiom that was used throughout uh, the Bible that kind of always went hand in hand with this concept of a wedding. Um, so I think what Jesus is probably saying here very loudly and clearly through this very first sign is he's boldly declaring, I am the Lord of the wedding, like the ultimate, complete wedding. I am the Lord over all of that. And I am also the Lord of all the earth, all the seasons, all the celebrations. Because if, again, you think about the idea of wine, wine takes a long time to actually make. So from the actual planting of the, I don't know, I, don't know, I guess there's seeds, yeah, plant seeds, you know, I don't even know, dude, I'm so bad at this stuff, so don't judge me. But the point is, it takes a long time. That's all I know. It takes a long time to grow these things, to water them, to protect them from any types of, you know, problems or whatnot. And then you harvest them. And then there's that entire process of fermentation and then getting it perfect to where it's just, perfect. It's very lengthy. And Jesus does this in an instant as if he's to say, I'm the Lord over all these things, all the processes, all of the seasons, all of the elements, all of the earth. I'm the Lord of all of this. And I come and I bring the wine and I let it flow freely. And again, it's also been pointed out, this is the best wine. This is not Carlo Rossi, right? This is not, you know, Tubac Chuck, right? This is literally the best of the best. I don't even know what like really good wines are, so it's some of you guys know what that is. You can throw it out. But, but the best of the best of the best wine. And, and there's so much wine 
it's almost like Jesus goes way over the top in producing, providing the best of the best. Almost, some su- suggested that to have an, an uh, overabundance of it, that actually the best now can actually be sold for a profit for the family that had dropped the ball and incurred the shame. Again, there's so many ways that you can go with this text that are just like, man, this is the heart of God to provide the best of the best and in abundance. Again, I don't know how you think about God or type of objections you have about Jesus. It is unfortunate. I do believe that in a lot of ways, uh, when people begin to think about Jesus or the work that he's come to represent, that he is the God of... You know, a, 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 he's the God that tries to put things in your road. He's the God that's like a, the God of the killjoy. He's the God that just wants to make your life miserable. It's actually the very, in fact, if you are Satan and your number one tactic in life is to provide a propaganda campaign against God, what would you do? You'd spin every story you can to make it look like God is just this cosmic killjoy. He's just out to destroy and ruin and suck your life dry of any goodness. This story actually completely confronts and challenges that idea and says that, no, actually, he's a God of abundance. He's a God that cares about your life. He's a God that actually cares about even senses or sensory perceptions, right? It's the best wine. It tastes good, in other words, that God actually cares about that. He created the taste buds on your tongue that allows you to be able to enjoy. This is the God that creates all of these good things. So my hope would be that you would at least Know the God that scripture declares. And then if you choose to reject him, reject him on those terms, not in the terms that you have inherited or imported and have lived according to. Let scripture kind of paint a picture of who this is. And lastly, I want to look at the very next little thing, which talks about Jesus's glory. So number one, we saw Jesus's sign had to do with wedding and wine. Secondly, let's take a look at Jesus' glory. So whatever Jesus's glory is, it's, it's definitely linked to this um, this story, because that's what John tells us. Uh, it's interesting to me that in the story, when the problem is originally brought to Jesus' attention, it's, it's his, his mom, Mary, that comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And then Jesus ha- kind of has this exchange with her. He's like, woman, you know, again, it's easy to read that as, Jesus, as if Jesus is being harsh and rude, because, you know, in our culture, we, we don't typically uh, address people like that. Um, and it might come across as curt and not very kind. But Jesus had nothing but love and affection for his mom. But some, most scholars actually would identify what Jesus is actually doing is he's kind of reprioritizing his mission and his assignment in life. It's as if he's saying, look, my aim in life is not first and foremost to do what you want me to do anymore. It's to do what the Father wants me to do. So there is a little bit of a distance that Jesus is putting between him and his mom in terms of her role as a mom and what a mom does and what Jesus is up to in this world. And that seems to be the situation of what's happening here in this context. Is he's saying, my job is to come to do what the Father has called me to do. But again, in that same context, Jesus is like, great, cool. Well, let's, let's make some, it's like, let's fix this problem. She doesn't tell him what to do. She just says to the servants, do whatever he says to, to do. But Jesus makes a statement. He says, my hour has not yet come. And again, this kind of raises the question, what was Jesus talking about? My hour has not yet come. Now, again, this is where it's helpful to know kind of the overview of the entire book. This phrase, my hour, is a, kind of a technical phrase that John uses over and over again. I'll just give you some examples of this. So if you're writing notes, you can write down John chapter 7, verse 30. John 7, verse 30. I'll read this to you. They were, this is what it says, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid hands on him because, guess what? His hour had not yet come. 
Same, same phrase. John chapter 8, verse 20. It says, as Jesus taught in the temple, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So there's something going on here other than Jesus saying, look, this is not my time to do miracles. Something else is happening. John is using a technical phrase that is linked throughout the rest of the book. The last little uh, reference, I think, is the most important one. John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, now before the feast of Passover. So whatever he's about to tell us, it's whatever is going to be taking place right now is, is interlinked to this concept of Passover. It says, when Jesus knew his hour had come. So whatever's about to take place, it's Jesus's hour has finally arrived and it's linked to this Passover, which John tells us actually in John chapter one, behold the lamb of God. That, that was a clear Passover reference that whoever Jesus is, whatever he's come to do, whatever his glory is, is linked to his hour. And I would even add to the signs that he performs. So with that being said, Jesus's glory and Jesus's hour are related to the sign of the wedding celebration, which is a sign of pure joy, that God cares about creating this, this, this future, this life that involves healing and radical transformation and radical abundance of joy, as we see depicted through this wedding celebration. Again, Jesus choosing carefully, and John also selectively which uh, miracles that Jesus, we, I mean, however John aligns these seven signs or miracles in the life of Jesus, they're not necessarily in a consecutive order. However, uh, Jesus, we do know that his very first uh, miracle of all was actually this wedding at Cana, Cana of Galilee. So what does this tell us a little bit about what Jesus is up to? I think Jesus, no doubt, would have been aware of this incredible passage. I want to land on this. Incredible uh, coming attractions, I think, of this uh, prophecy out of the book of Isaiah. And I just want to read it to you. I want you to listen to it um, and just ponder how this phrase that would have been kind of like an echo in the minds of first century Jews, hearing this and then watching Jesus basically perform this street drama of what he's about to do. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 25, verses uh, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, an aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from their faces, the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, and we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in the salvation he brings. And this, to me, is is an amazing fulfillment, I think, of what Jesus is basically pointing to. That he is, whoever he is, he comes to do something that no one else can actually do. This is one of the interesting things that I've considered with regard to just studying different world religions and different other uh, religious aspects. Um, so, for example, in Islam, as well as other types of religious aspects or components, Jesus is oftentimes seen as a prophet, a very high-level prophet, and God is oftentimes seen as a supreme master to which you owe just complete subservience to period you don't question you just serve this master god uh throughout buddhism hinduism you can even add paganism or witchcraft or pantheism the pantheistic type religions jesus is often seen as this ascended sage 
He's done really well in life. He's accomplished, overcome certain goals. He's been able to attach into his deepest authentic self. Whatever he says, learn from that. In Christianity, Jesus is seen as his bridegroom. God is seen as a father. And this imagery just takes this radical blossoming in beautiful effect that however you think about this idea that God says throughout all eternity, I will devote myself to you like a marriage. I will never, ever, ever fail you or forsake you. I will be for you everything that you ache for, long for, desire. Why do people oftentimes in our culture, in our age today, go to parties or find themselves in certain relationships that might provide an immediate type of life in the moment, but in the long run actually bring about a dehumanization, a defilement, a brokenness, a hurt, an ache, a pain that oftentimes just lasts or lingers for years and years and years to come is because we're longing for something to where we know that we know in spite of who we are, how broken we are, how messed up we are, how much we've contributed to our pain or the pain of other people, that we will be loved. And this is exactly what Jesus promises. Last thing I want to finish with that I'm done, in terms of like a pastoral encouragement or something to take away or summary, and just one simple thought. It's as simple as what John says, or I should say Mary says to the servants. Do whatever Jesus tells you. I have no other way, no other like summary message to tell you. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Everything in our culture says, do whatever your heart tells you. And I want to tell you something. As romantic as that sounds, it will always lead to a path of pain and brokenness. Because your heart is this endless black hole, constantly longing, looking for something. Our hearts are like this broken GPS where we don't know what true north is. Don't do what your heart tells you. That's the worst advice. Don't do what a TikTok influencer tells you. That's the worst advice. Do whatever Jesus tells you. We, our culture says do whatever your sexual drives tell you. Whatever your identity features that are there most prominent in your heart, do what that, that's where you will find joy. And I'm telling you, it will not fulfill what it promises. And what we see here in the story is that these people get connected to the joy of this celebration because they do whatever Jesus tells them. That doesn't mean that your life is going to somehow be flowery and everything's going to be amazing the moment you trust Jesus. It does mean, though, that you will begin on a path that will move towards a place of relationship, oneness, marriage, connection, intimacy, connectedness, knownness, being loved, being devoted to by God. So, this was the first of seven signs that Jesus brings forth. How about we all stand, and I want to pray over us. So, Father, right now we come to you and we just open ourselves and our need before you raw and bare. And we just say, God, we need you in all of these areas of our lives where we find ourselves broken, hurting, raw, fragile. Jesus, thank you that you are the Lord of celebrations, Lord of 
commitment and devotion, Lord of abundance, that you take upon ourselves, our brokenness, our shame, our joylessness, and you, in exchange you give us yourself. You are the source of all life. So, Jesus, right now as we pause, we reflect, we consider the invitation that you give to us all right now. Whether or not we've devoted ourselves to you years and years ago, uh, and we need to re-up that devotion, that commitment, that recognition that we need you, or whether or not we have never really truly devoted ourselves to you. Right now, God, we want as a, as a community to say that we, we turn to you. Thank you, God, for you initiating life on our behalf for us. And that's good news. That's the good news that we need more than ever to hear in today's world. So we just ask for your empowerment and your strength as we scatter now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And may the grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God be yours.